Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport, and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance, and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back for another week. If you missed last week's episode, it was with Sammy Kennedy Sims, who represented Australia as the number one ranked ski cross athlete in the Southern Hemisphere. She proudly wore the green and gold at three Olympics. However, this particular episode is about her grit and her resilience. She had a stroke at 24 years of age and only nine months later, she competed in her first Olympic Games. So if you missed that one, make sure you tag it and listen to it later this week. Some of our episodes are heartbreaking, some challenging, some are more informative, but that episode with Sammy, it is completely inspirational. So go check it out. Also, this is our last call out if you want to join us on April the 2nd for our face-to-face workshop on DISC personality profiling, the number one behavioral assessment tool in the world. I recommend this workshop for anyone who wants to learn more about why people do what they do, how to improve your communication with others, and how to unpack more about your own strengths and your own challenges. This is one of my all-time favorite workshops to facilitate, and I would personally love to invite you to come along. Jump on our show notes for the link, and I will also pop it in the Challenges That Change Us Facebook community. Today, I want to introduce you to Jo Bird, a beautiful friend of mine who has had her fair share of challenges. Jo began her career in early childhood studies, working as a preschool teacher for over 20 years. She has a master's in philosophy completed a PhD researching children's use of digital technologies in play. She is a senior lecturer at the University of New England and works with educators to build skills and confidence around using technologies for children's play and their programming. Today, she comes on and shares her journey, her journey around endometriosis and IVF. We talk about how this has impacted her life how she ended up losing 58 kilos in the process. And we talk about IVF and how she's raising two beautiful little boys, twin boys, as a single mum. I love this episode so much. I actually invited Jo to come back on and share her story around having those baby boys. So stay tuned as you are going to hear from Jo again soon. As you all know, I like to give trigger warnings at the start of every episode so that you can decide if this is the right episode for you today. Joe and I will discuss endometriosis, IVF, and we briefly touch on depression. And if you find that you would like to talk to someone, Lifeline is here to listen. 13, 11, 14. Let me introduce you to Joe. Today, I'd love to introduce you to Joe. Thank you, Joe, so much for coming on the podcast today. No worries. Thanks for having me, Alice. And as you know, Joe, being a listener, our first question is always what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? It would be a duck. Many years ago, when I was working as a preschool teacher, we had ducklings and we put them in a a clear trough and on the surface they just look like they're floating around all happy and everything and then we could also see their legs under the water and under the water their legs are going absolutely crazy just trying to swim and paddle and change direction and that's what I feel like that everyone sees me as this cool calm collected person that you know doesn't panic in a 
in an emergency and has everything together. But in actual fact, what I feel like is that duck with my legs going absolutely crazy. You know, it's so funny you say that, Joe, because just when you started talking, I felt calmness come over me. Like I was like, oh, I'm talking to Joe. <laughs> this is going to be a beautiful, calm episode, isn't it? Because that was my very first response when you started on this call. Oh, yeah, but for you, what you're saying is often it feels like it's, it's really chaotic behind the scenes or in your mind or what actually feels like in your world. Yes, definitely. And what people see isn't necessarily what I I feel and think inside my head. And I've been told I see a counsellor regularly and she's told me that I need to start focusing on what other people see and and believe in what other people see because I don't necessarily think that with myself. Mm. And we might even be touching on that towards the end of the episode around how that's been for you and and how you're going with that because that's that's a big ask, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Definitely. The other thing that I heard you say and I always love when someone gets on the podcast that I do know because I always learn something new and I didn't know you were a preschool teacher. Oh really? No. Oh okay. Yeah, I was a preschool teacher for well, way over 20 years. You're right. I, yeah, work childcare and preschool in, in Victoria. Yep. I've only known you since you've been up at the uni. Yeah, so I lecture in early childhood now. So I teach preschool teachers to be preschool teachers. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. I've learned something new already <laughs> and we're only three minutes in. Um, <laughs> and Joe, we've brought you on the podcast today to have a big discussion around babies and the journey it can take to having beautiful little babies. You've had lots of challenges and kind of forks in the road along your journey. Do you want to take us right back to perhaps the beginning of where this all started for your two little beautiful babies? Yes, so I now have two nearly three-year-old toddler twin boys, but my journey probably started very early on. I've always loved children and wanted to be a mother in preschool. So when I was four and people asked me what I wanted to be, I always said a mother, Um, and that was always sort of my thing. I struggled when I first went through puberty with a lot of pain and heavy periods and that sort of thing and was told that, you know, I'm a woman, get used to it, those sort of responses. When I was 18, I was at uni and I was having two days off a month um, because of the pain. And I went to my doctor and just said, I can't do this anymore. You know, I need need something. And my mum had seen a gynecologist in Melbourne. So she said, get a referral to her and she'll check you out. So she asked me lots of questions. I had to have a laparoscopy to diagnose and I was diagnosed with endometriosis and she came in and I was still recovering from the surgery and she patted my hand and I'll never forget this. And she said, "Um, all the suffering, I've worked out what it is. It is endometriosis and I've got rid of it, but we'll chat more once you're better. And so that was like a huge relief because I didn't go through the surgery and find out there was nothing and that it was all in my mind, which Mm. I was told by one doctor. It sounds almost validating, even though it's a diagnosis of a description, but like, oh, there is something like there's a reason why I'm feeling this way or the pain. Absolutely. And, And people just, you know, I was told that I was quite soft and I needed to toughen up and things like that. But I was getting to the point just before my surgery where, I'd be doubled over in pain, often vomiting and things like that, all because of the pain. And I kept saying to people, you know, it's not in my head. Like I'm not, I don't want this to be the case, but that was what was happening. So I ended up having, I think I'm up to, I was up to about 19 surgeries, like laparoscopies. 19. (laughs) 19 for endometriosis. So at one stage I was having one every sort of 12, 18 months. So, yeah, so it was, you know, pretty serious. I was put on lots of different medications and the medication were often contraceptives and that would work for, you know, one, two, three years, sometimes up to five years. And then, you know, I start to get symptoms back again and um, start getting the pain back again and things like that. I remember being told in my early 20s to just find a man, have a baby and you'll be right. Easier said than done. <laughs> Easier said than done. So that <laughs> leads to my second challenge. So <laughs> before we get to your, yeah, before we get to your second challenge, just a little bit about endometriosis because I think it's often misunderstood as well. Are you able to tell us a little bit about your experience of how it showed up in your world, like the symptoms and your experience of it? Yep. So what it is is the uh, tissue similar to 
the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus, grows outside the uterus. So it grows on other organs, it creates lesions, and it reacts to the hormones. So when you have your menstrual cycle, so your period, you normally bleed. Well, that endometriosis tissue, or endo for short, that tissue also bleeds. It also causes pain and things like that. So you're bleeding basically into your abdomen at that time of the month. So it's very painful. You often have really heavy periods. Not only is it painful for period time, it's also painful around ovulation time. Any kind of hormone changes causes pain. Also painful during sex, which isn't isn't nice and also very hard to explain to you know, partners that, you know, actually that that's kind of really hurting or things like that. Some of my partners have been quite um, supportive. Others just, you know, just like, well, you know, bad luck sort of thing. I imagine it's also because you can't see it as well. It'd be easy for people to forget, you know, unless you're reminding someone regularly when they look at you, you look and sound normal. It's a little like brain injury, you know, people can't see it. So they just walk in the world forgetting about it. Yes, I've got a friend that got to know me quite well and she's quite sensitive to and gets to know people and picks up on people's cues and she's very good at reading those cues. She'd be a great poker player. And she knew by the way I'd put my hand on my stomach because I'd often put pressure on the spot that was hurting and then try and breathe through it. So she'd go, oh, is your endo playing up? And I'd be like, hmm. Yes. Like, you know, because most people wouldn't know. Um, and so I, it was just something that I lived with. I often planned things around when my period was due. I then went through medication where I didn't actually get a period, which was lovely, but I was still getting, you know, endo symptoms and things like that. So it really did in a way, control my life Mm. a lot. Well, if you're saying it happens with your periods and when you ovulate, that's every two Mm. weeks for most people, you know, like every 14 days. Yeah, but then you have the other symptoms like because the endo was growing, you know, on my bladder, you know, I'd get pain on my bladder. So I'd be sitting there and all of a sudden I'd think, oh, my God, I'm going to wet myself. Like I can't control it because the pain's just so great and I'd be racing off to the toilet I ended up with a bit on my bowel that was causing me to either be constipated or have diarrhea I'd be the two extremes and these were all just the side effect symptoms and and things and what was the hardest part for you Joe? I know it's I know this isn't the challenge it, it sounds like we're going in there guys but um this is like the leading you know <laughs> and leading, so absolutely. yes I am curious for you because that was a long time in your life that you were managing these symptoms managing your relationships around these symptoms and as we heard managing your life around these symptoms what for you was the hardest part that thought in the back of my mind that that my body was doing damage, then I may not be able to have children. And I was told very early on, and the location of my first lot of endo was mainly in the Douglas pouch and on a few of the ligaments that hold my uterus. And I was told by my first gyno that even if I got pregnant, I may not carry full term, I may need to be on bed rest and all of this sort of thing because of where it was and things like that. So in the back of my mind was always, you know, I need to find that, that man, have a baby, you know, as soon as I can, otherwise my body's just going to keep doing damage to itself. And and I won't be able to have kids. Yeah, I might, might not be able to have kids and, you know, that's all I'd ever wanted. And thinking about, you know, not being a mother was just, for me, heartbreaking. And I'd see all these people that would just have a one-night stand and get pregnant or, mm. you know, just get pregnant at the drop of a hat and things like that. And I'd be just like, oh, you know, and you don't have to suffer endo as well as, you know, not having a, a partner and all those sort of things. So, that was always in the back of my mind. It's a big journey, isn't it, Joe? And it's one that sounds like it's quite isolating and lonely as well. It's not one that it's not a shared experience in a way. No. And even if, you know, I did share it because it's my body and like you said, you can't see it, it's hard for people to understand. And, you know, I have friends that say, oh, you know, I don't even get any pain. Like I just get, you know, three days of bleeding, that's it. Until recently I never had any pain or headaches or moody actually ask my friends and my husband (laughs) but like I would say that as a woman it didn't impact me at all until my uh, 30s late 30s so you know I'm on that opposite side of the fence and so when I hear this I it's hard for me to even picture it or to understand the gravity of it and the enormity of it I think I mean how often it's with you and how often it's in your mind and how you've got to think about it and plan around it. Yeah, and I've done a lot of alternative medicine and Chinese herbs and all those sort of things to try and keep it under control. 
And, you know, women's health practitioners say that your period shouldn't actually be painful, that there is an issue there if you're getting more than just a slight or dull ache you know, you need to have, a, have that looked at. And so I'm a big, you know, advocate for someone says to me, oh, I've got, you know, I've had, oh, I've got this painful period. Oh, it's horrible. I'm like, go to the doctor, get it checked out. You know, don't take no for an answer. It's not in your head. You know, it's not supposed to be like that because, you know, endo can do so much damage and do damage to other organs. And it just, yeah, I know of a case where she actually didn't know she had endo. She went in for a surgery to find out why she couldn't conceive and, they found, you know, severe endo and she was just like, I just had no idea and it had done a lot of damage and she'd never had a painful period in her life. Ah. So there's what they call silent endo, yeah, that's, yeah. And how do they diagnose endo? Now they can diagnose severe endo through an ultrasound, whereas when I was diagnosed the only way was a laparoscopy, um, so surgery. Or 19 of them. Or 19 of them. Well, <laughs> the first one was the diagnosis. The rest was, <laughs> you know, I knew the symptoms and I'd just go to my gyno and say, book me in. And I, you know, I'm a bit shocked about that. So mm. now they can do an ultrasound, but it's not just a normal ultrasound. It's, you know, quite a specific, I don't know, high grade ultrasound. And it needs to be a specialist that can recognize what endo looks like on ultrasound. Because to me, it just looks like all the other waves on an ultrasound. But in actual fact, that's that's endo yeah yeah and what happened next for you on your journey um well I continued on I you know had different partners that I thought might eventuate to you know a long-term relationship and and children and it didn't so I started thinking well maybe it's not going to happen for me and to you know work a bit harder on my career I moved up to Armadale and my parents actually gave me my wedding fund which is kind of funny. They said to me, well, you know, it's probably better off with you when you can buy a house and things like that. So I had some money behind me and I'd been having a few more symptoms and I was organizing a time back in Melbourne and I went and saw my gyno and said, you know, I'm having these symptoms. What do I do? And he'd organized an ultrasound for me a few days before. And when I got to his office, he said, right, you've got some big decisions to make. I said, okay. And he said, yes, you've got endo back and you need another laparoscopy. But if you want to have kids, you need to think about either freezing your eggs or starting IVF as a single woman now. So this is your choice. My recommendation, if you'd had your family and that wasn't still an option, he said, I'd be recommending a hysterectomy because of um, the severe endo and I just sort of went oh okay and because I was living in New South Wales he's in Melbourne he said I'll recommend you to someone in Sydney that's you know a good friend of of his and um is a great fertility specialist and and things and he said but it's up to you I'll give you your, his details and you can organize it if you want to and I'll send him a referral and you know it's there if you want to take that up he said it's up to you what was your reaction to that I was just like Mm, holy shit (laughs) um and I sort of went home and I was staying with my parents and mum knew something was going on she goes how'd you go at the doctor and I said oh you know my endo's back and just sort of brushed it off and then she said oh is there more to it and I said well I've got some decisions to make and she said what do you mean and I said well I need to decide do I try and do IVF and have kids or do I have a hysterectomy and she was just like oh and she said, well, you know, you need to look after your health. And, you know, her her thought, I think, I've never actually had the conversation about it, but I think her thought was, you know, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do IVF by yourself. IVF, you know, can't do your IVF by yourself and you can't have a child by yourself. And, you know, so it's a hysterectomy and, and things. And I said, well, I've got some decision to make. And I just said to her, I don't want your opinion. I need to make this decision myself. I said, I don't want to hear that you don't think I should have children, I want to make this decision and then you can have an opinion after, you know, I've made the decision. And I went away for a few days down the coast with a friend and spoke to her about it and she was a year older than me and had been in a long-term relationship and when she came out of that she admitted that she wanted kids but her partner didn't, whereas I always thought it was the other way around and and things. And she said, look, if you've got the chance, I'd, I'd go for it and, and things like that. And I was just like, oh, I really don't know. And Yeah. Well, you can't really know, I'd imagine, in that moment because 
Yeah, I, I just can't even imagine, you know. It's not something you can decide yeah. in 24 hours. No, and I, like you said to me, I have time, but, you know, my eggs were getting older and, you know, there was no guarantee with IVF and, and things like that. What were some of the things that you were thinking about? Could I do it by myself? Because I, you know, had a few friends and my sister was a single mum and things and I just sort of looked at other people and went, you know, is it something that I can? Is it something I actually want to do? And when I spoke to my friend while we were away and said, you know, that could I actually bring a child into the world without a father, she said, well, that's no guarantee that you're going to stay with the father or it's going to be a, a loving relationship. And, you know, she said, you know that research shows that, you know, you're better off separated than being in a relationship and arguing and, and fighting and things like that. So she said, you take that pressure out of the of the situation. Like it would just be you and your child and and things. And I just kept thinking, you know, trying to put my head into the idea that I would never have children, that I wouldn't, you know, be able to teach my my child, see my child grow up, be pregnant, you know, all of those sort of things. And yeah, I just went, I can't do that. Like I need to give it a go and I need to, you know, have a go and, and try. So I did speak to someone that I knew who'd done IVF as a single person who didn't actually get pregnant. And I spoke to her and and she said she was comfortable because she'd given it a go and she'd tried her best and it wasn't meant to be. And she said she's now accepted that and you know, has moved on with her life and has a really successful life and she's since met a partner, they have this very cute puppy together, all that sort of thing. And and I just went, okay, I need to give this a go. So I left that sort of holiday, came back and told my parents and I said I'm I think I told my parents that I was actually still trying to decide because I didn't want to tell them. Because do you know why you didn't want to tell them? I was a bit worried that my parents would be negative about doing IVF as a single person. And I just didn't want that negativity. Were you worried about other people thinking that as well? Like was part of you worried about judgment? Yeah, I was. But at the same time, like I just wanted, you know, I wanted a child. And I know that sounds really selfish, but at the same time I needed that. Like I've always felt that my role in life was to be a mother. Mm. It's interesting that you say that though, that it sounds selfish. At no point am I thinking that. Like as I'm listening, I'm like, isn't that interesting that you're worried what other people think? Because I can't imagine anyone judging that situation. But, you know, in your experience, it's like, are they going to? Mm. I have had people judge me and not to my face, um, which I'm not sure is better or worse. But, you know, I've heard secondhand that the reason why, you know, particular friends aren't contacting me anymore is because I made that choice. No. That's more about them than it is about me and my choice. I can't believe that. Well, that's yeah, it's people and their beliefs and and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. (sighs) Yeah. So I came back to Armadale and had made that decision. I had to wait till after Christmas, New Year, and then rang the fertility specialist and said, you know, I'd like to do IVF and and things. So I had the appointment and and he was really supportive about me doing it by myself. And he said, I have a lot of clients that that do it and that's great. And this is this is the process. This is what we need to do. And he said, we'll do all the tests and checks and everything first and we'll get you started. And I finished that appointment on a real high. Like I was just I was so excited and I just thought this is this is actually going to happen. Well you were thinking about being a mum. Oh absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I went off and I had the <laughs> the blood tests and I think it was it was something like um, 16 vials of blood they took that first blood test and I remember just sitting there going, oh, I may as well have donated blood. Like I feel like they've taken just as much. <laughs> but that was just to check all the hormones and, you know, everything. And so he got all those results and he said to me at the next appointment that the whatever it is they test to, to see how many eggs you have left. He said, you're not going into menopause anytime soon. He said, you have a lot of eggs, but they are, I think I was 42 or 43 at that stage, That, but they are, they're old eggs. And the age of the eggs and the quality of the eggs is what, you know, what determines whether you'll be successful with IVF. So that sort of brought me down. He gave me a lot of statistics around how many people do get pregnant through IVF and you know, at every point of the IVF process from 
you know, the hormones to egg collection to fertilisation to then whether you freeze them or have fresh transfers to the transfer, you know, to get pregnant, to make it to, you know, that viability scan to the 12-week scan to, you know, all of those different scans and things like that. That's There's just steps along the way where something goes wrong. And even though I studied, you know, child development right from, you know, conception and I knew the process, I didn't realise how particular everything has to be and then it makes you look at children and just go wow they really are a miracle to actually happen that Mm. you know that everything has to line up and and be right and and things like that so and was that part of the when you stand back and look back on that journey just how specific and particular things need to be yep definitely and and things so it was a bit full-on so yeah and you said you're 42 at the time did that come into consideration for you it did but at that time, I was the fittest I'd been in my life. Had a good trainer? I had a very good trainer. <laughs> <laughs> Willow was fantastic. <laughs> anyway, that no. Doesn't know she was training with us. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it was that situation. And, you know, I look back at that fit time and I remember thinking I wasn't fit and mm. that I wasn't you know, I used to say I wasn't skinny, I wasn't, you know, and I look at myself now and, you know, I put on weight after, yeah, wish that. Wish that you could be that fit and that. I, do you know, I say this all the time, you don't, re- and we're totally diverging here, but you don't realise how fit and healthy you are until you, you don't have it. And then you look back and think, if only I could have taken a moment and recognised it then. It's like being young. You don't realise how agile your body is and brain and how easily you can bounce back from things in your 20s compared to your 40s. You can't know. You can't know. No, and you can't know. And I was really fit and and healthy and things like that. Yeah, so I started the, the journey. I told a couple of close friends and then a couple of people, colleagues at work who were also friends because I needed that support. I also needed someone to come with me for the egg collection because that was surgery and things like that. Um, I always joke with one particular friend about the different places that I've injected myself around Armadale. Like I go to a pub and I go to the bathroom and think, oh, you know, how many times have I snuck off in here with my bag and, you know, given myself the hormone injection and, and things like that. Is that because it has to be at a certain time? It has to be at a certain time. And if I'd had a dinner or, you know, something that I didn't want to miss out because I didn't want people to go, well, why is Joe avoiding things? This is yeah. not like Joe because I'm a social person yeah. and things. But I also didn't want to, you know, have to keep looking at the clock and go, oh. And I'd made my injection time 8 o'clock because most of the time, you know, I was home by 8 o'clock or if I went out for dinner I could, you know, do the whole, oh, I'm tired at 7.30 and, and head home. But there were also dinners that didn't start until 7 o'clock and to be home by 8 was just, you know, and I didn't want that risk of missing the, the medication because, you know, IVF isn't cheap. Did anyone ever get a bit sus and they're like, Joe, what are you, should we be worried no. about you? <laughs> no, no, not at all. You've gone because... off with this little bag at 8 o'clock every time we're out. Like there's something yep. we don't know. <laughs> not that they, no one ever actually said, hey, what's going on? I did have a friend later on that when I announced that I was pregnant, she said, remember that dinner we had and you got all upset when I was talking about how hard children are and, and things and you raced off crying to the bathroom and I'm like, yeah, I'd found out that day that, you know, a transfer hadn't worked. And she was just like, oh, she said, I sort of suspected. And she said, I felt like such a bitch. But at the same time, she was going through her own stuff and and things. And that's, Joe. I, you know, that's what I want to ask you about because often I think people put a lot of expectation on themselves that they shouldn't feel the way they feel. Like you're allowed to be super envious and jealous and of people outside your world that have got children whilst being happy for them. You can have those two emotions. Like you're going through one of the toughest things you may ever go through in your life. Yeah. And I always found it, I suppose, hard on on the one hand and it was those two emotions when I was teaching and I, you know, see these beautiful children or, you know, children that weren't being treated how I thought they should be treated and I'd look at the parents and think, you know, if if that was my child, I'd be treating them totally differently to that. And, you know, I felt like slapping the parents and saying, you know, you have no idea how lucky you are to have this child. I knew I couldn't do that. But at the same time, that's how I felt and, you know, wanted to do that or, you know, because 
yeah, just and watching my brother and sister have children, like I was over the moon happy and excited for them, but at the same time, I just wanted it to be me. You know, not necessarily with a partner, but <laughs> I just wanted the baby. Yeah. How did you manage those feelings and emotions when they came up? I pretty much retreated a lot. I did suffer from depression just before I turned 30 and was, yeah, really struggling and just was over the fact that I was single and at the time I was overweight and, you know, didn't have a child and, you know, people were pointing out all the positives about my life but at the same time I was like, but, you know, the things I actually want aren't happening. And I remember going to the doctor and he said to me, you know, you need to start looking after yourself, you need to lose weight, you need to, you know, get healthy. And I remember thinking he was horrible and I wasn't going back to him and how dare he talk to me like that. And I left and I was in the car and a friend rang and said she'd just been to the doctor and had a a test and she was a bit older than me and she said, you know, I've got diabetes, I've now got a heart condition. She said, I'm overweight. She said, Joe, lose the weight. You need to do it while you're young, just lose the weight. And I was like, crap, why is everyone telling me this today? And so I went, I was heading to a shopping centre in Melbourne and went in and they were doing renovations on the shopping centre and they were building a new gym. And as I walked along, this guy said to me, hi, would you like to become a foundation member? Your fee will never go up for as long as you're a member. You also get three free personal training sessions. You get this, you know, gym bag, towel, drink bottle, you know, all this. And I just stood there and thought that's the third thing in the space of an hour that is saying to me, get fit, lose weight. And I just went, yep, yeah, I'm going to do this. So I signed up then and there on the spot. No. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I did and I signed up and I remember when they rang me to book me with a personal trainer once the gym had opened and he said to me, oh, what do you want to do in personal training? Why have you joined the gym? And I said, I need to lose weight. And he's like, oh, okay, how, how much weight are we talking, five or ten kilos? And I went 60. And he went, what? And I went, yeah, I'm really overweight. I need to lose 60 kilos. And he was just like, are you sure you need to? And I'm like, yep. Yeah. And he's like, radio, I know exactly who to put you with. And I was like, okay, cool. And I thought, I've just got to be honest. I've just got to, you know, be honest with myself, I was morbidly obese and struggling, you know, physically, um, mentally, the works. Anyway, I turned up at the gym for my first personal training session and I walked in and the person I was given as my personal trainer was this short size, probably four, gorgeous, fit-looking, beautiful woman and I just went, oh, great, probably a few swear words in my head and all that sort of thing. And we sat down and she started talking and she could tell that I was just like, yeah, you have no idea, you're just gorgeous and you've always been gorgeous, like that's how it is. So I did the, went through the motions, we did the personal training session, I struggled even walking very far on the treadmill, she tried to get me lifting a few weights and she said, you're actually quite strong. And I said, oh, okay, great sort of thing and and we booked in the next session and I was arming and ahhing whether I'd cancel and I just went, no, I've got these for free, I may as well just do it. Anyway, we turned up the next time and she said, like, we're going to do the measurements and the weights, but there's something I want to show you first. Let's go into this room. And she handed me this book and I said, what's this? And she said, open it and have a look. And I opened it. And on the first page was this photo of a short, rather dumpy person. And I went, oh, who's this? And she said, that's me. And I was like, no, it's not. I looked closer and you could tell by the eyes that it was her. And she said, I haven't always been skinny and fit. Mm. And I just got goosebumps, burst into tears, and I just went, I want to be like that. I want to be skinny. I want to be, you know, fit and healthy. I don't want to be this, you know, unhappy, big, fat person anymore. Anyway, so we worked together and, you know, I used to do a half an hour session, go home and sleep for two hours because I was exhausted. Like it took a lot out of me. We ended up building up to 45 minutes and we ended up building up to twice a week and I worked with her until I left Melbourne. We were training We used to train together once a week and then she'd train me the second time and things. And she loved it because we were, you know, on the the same, we got to the same level in terms of what we were doing, the exercises and, and things like that. Like it was just, it was just amazing. And I did, you know, lose the weight and it was, yeah. What did it mean for you going through that process and getting to a point that you're talking about now? It was really satisfying and it was really that whole I can do this like that was amazing and and people would say to me how have you done it and I'd say blood sweat and tears and they'd say oh what medication I'm like 
no medication. I'm actually on less medication than when I started the journey. I went back to the doctor that had first told me to lose weight and get fit. And I was, you know, I'd booked in and I was sitting there in the waiting room and he called my name and I stood up and started walking towards him. And he was like looking around the room trying to find me. And I'm like, hello. And he just went, oh my God. Mm. And he just looked me up and down was just like, you're half the person you were. And I'm like, yeah. And he walked in and he's like, stand on the scales, stand on the scales. And he put it in and he had it on his computer. So it was like what I originally was and like down, down like this. And he just sat there and he just kept saying, oh, my God. And he's like, how have you done this? And I said, blood, sweat and tears. And he goes, what made you do it? And I said, and excuse my friends, but some asshole of a doctor told me I needed to lose weight and <laughs> yeah. get fit. He goes, was that me? And I'm like, yes, it was. Yeah, and I was um, really angry at you there for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was. And I worked with my personal trainer and Marlena was fantastic. And when she was trying to get me to run and and things when I first started jogging and, and that, which, you know, I couldn't believe I was doing. She kept saying to me, you're getting strong, you're getting fit. And I said, no, it's not working. You need to say you're getting skinny. That was my focus was getting skinny, but getting fit and strong and healthy, you know, was a byproduct. I just needed to look in the mirror and see a skinny person. And when I got down to pretty much nearly to my goal weight, cause I never got to what I was hoping to get down to, but I still wish I was back to where I was. You know, I, I kept saying, it's really hard because I'd go shopping and I'd still reach for those bigger clothes. Mm. I'd get into the change room and go, oh, my God, this just swings on me and, and things like that. In my head, the image was still that large person, but my body was now this skinny person and now I'm finding that my body is the large person and in my head I'm still that fit, skinny person. So I go to do something and then go, oh, <laughs> oh that doesn't work anymore. And that's, you know, my goal now is getting back to that fitness for my boys. And I think, Joe, what I'm hearing there is really common. It's like we put so much emphasis on a size. What we probably don't put enough emphasis on is what we're actually telling ourselves and what's happening inside our head about our body and how we see our body. And, you know, there will be times in your life where being fit is the most important thing. How do I move so that I feel free and I can say yes to things? Or, you know, maybe it is when you're in a situation where you are overweight and obese and it's potentially going to have a long-term impact on your your quality of life and that means you need to lose the weight you know you physically need to lose weight so that your body can do all the things you want it to do we could do a whole podcast on that alone you know it's oh, obviously absolutely. you're talking to a personal <laughs> trainer and you know like it's, it's hard for me not to ask a lot of questions around this I do want to ask one though Joe, before we come back into the kids and and that is what lessons have you taken away from that whole experience definitely that your motivation has to be there and it has to be motivation that works for you you know like the doctor telling me to lose weight wasn't enough of a motivation I you know had to think about what I wanted did I want to be this fat unhappy person that was on antidepressants for the rest of my life or did I want to actually take control of my life lose the weight and get fit and healthy people kept telling me that once I started losing weight and was, you know, looking much better, they'd say, oh, you'll pick up a man, no worries. And I was just like, that's not even on my radar. Like I just want to lose the weight. And, yes, I once I got a bit skinnier, I started, you know, doing some dating, but I just it wasn't sort of what I wanted. It was just I was focused on me. The big thing I had to do was to say no, which was really, really hard. And in the first five years that I was personal training and I lost the weight, I said no to my personal trainer twice. Once was when my grandfather died and my I'd been with my grandmother the night before. She rang me in the morning and said, he died, can you come? So I rang my trainer and said, I'm not going to make training this morning. The other one was I caught gastro from work, which was disgusting. And they're the only two times in that whole time that I cancelled a training session that I'd booked with her. Yes, I rearranged because of holidays, or things like that, but I always rearranged to the same week. I also said no to my family. So my family knew that these are my training sessions. I trained Saturday morning and usually one night during the week and that I wasn't available for, you know, babysitting or doing something. Oh, they'd have to wait for, you know, an hour past my training session so I could go home and have a shower and then get to something. And, and so I just said no. And people got to know that 
you know. It was non-negotiable. It was non- non-negotiable and that's I had to do that for myself because I know and I know now like I've started going back to the gym on the university campus because it's close to childcare and it's just easier even though I'd love to come back to you guys. I was going to say, future. Jay, hey, we're, yeah. we're a cold yeah, different we kettle of fish. We will get there. Yeah. yeah, we'll get there and things but, you know, I try and be strict with myself but I don't have the same level of motivation that I have. Um, I'm also tired. I'm running after you know, two toddlers and things like that. So yeah, it's just finding that motivation Mm. for yourself. Well, there's three things I heard in there. One is the accountability to yourself and someone else. Consistency is key, which we talk about all the time in fitness, but it really is doing the small often will get you far further than doing the big stuff less often and also making yourself a priority. Yep. Absolutely. And that's what I heard. When you yep. say say no to others, it's like this is a non-negotiable and it just has to be or you, or you can't get the results that you're looking for. Joe, like I said, we could stay in this section and, and it's one of my big passions in life. But let's let's keep talking about the kids and the pregnancy because we haven't even got to the two no, beautiful little boys. Okay. <laughs> so IVF. <laughs> yep, IVF. So I did, in the end, I did IVF for two and a half years. I started using my own eggs and donor sperm. And then I got to a point where we weren't getting quality eggs when I did egg, egg collection. And my fertility specialist said, you actually need to consider an egg donor. And that was a whole nother level of thinking and working it out. And I undenied and I thought this was going to be the end of my journey. And I was part of a Facebook group, which was Egg Donors Australia, and that has both recipients and donors on it. And they have regular meetups in Sydney and I live, you know, away from Sydney, so I don't get to go to those. And I was heading to Sydney for a conference and one of the people put on there that they were planning an egg donor meetup for either the Saturday or the Sunday. And my conference started on the Sunday and I saw that post come up and I jumped on straight away and said, can we make it the Saturday? I'm actually going to be in Sydney for a conference. I'd love to go. And she just wrote back and said, you're the first one to make a comment. So yeah, we'll make it the Saturday. I was so excited. So I turned up to this egg donor meetup and I was so nervous and and things like that. And I met so many lovely people, both donors and recipients. And I met a lovely couple who had a nearly one-year-old. I think she was turning one like the week after or two weeks after. And I chatted and I said to the mum, you know, how did you feel? Like, is she your baby or do you feel like she's someone else's and you've just been, you know, given her to look after sort of thing. And she said, no, she said, you carry them for nine months, you give birth to them, you get to know them, you breastfeed them, you do all of that. She said, she said, I often forget that she's not mine. And she said, she has some of my characteristics. She has the genetics from my husband, you know, so she's similar to our other daughter who's a different egg donor. And I just thought, actually, I think, I think this is something I might give a go, I might try and put my name down for someone to donate eggs to me, which is a huge thing. Um, there's not enough egg donors for the number of people that need egg donors, but at the same time I understand that handing over your genetic material in, in eggs or in sperm is a huge thing. So I left on a real high knowing that it was something I wanted to do. That night in my hotel room, I you know, added my profile to egg donor website and crossed my fingers and hoped that you know, someone would look at, read my post and go, yep, I'm going to donate to them. I was then at the conference and I got an email from the couple that I'd met saying, we've actually spoken to our egg donor and we've got some embryos that we'd love to donate to you. And I'm sitting there reading it in the middle of someone else's presentation going, oh, my God, oh. And I just, I had to read it probably four times. And I wrote back and just said, absolutely, that would just be amazing. Oh, my God. Like, yes, 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 sort of oh thing. Oh, my God. Um, and they just said, we'll be in touch. And we just bumped thinking I'm about crying it. for those that can't <laughs> see. Like, oh, my God, yep. Absolutely. <gasps> that moment. Oh, it was just unbelievable. Oh. And and I I kept that quiet I didn't tell anyone for probably two days and and then I I mentioned it to a friend I was in the conference with and I said 
I'm just, I have to let this out or else I'm, I'm just going to explode. And she was like, that is awesome. Like, you know, that's, that's fantastic sort of thing. Anyway, so we were in touch and all of that. And they, we did all the paperwork and we had to do counseling and we got along so well. So my boys are very special. They have three donors. So they have their egg donor, they have their sperm donor, and then they have the wife of the sperm donor because the egg donor donated to the couple, that couple then has to also give permission and the egg donor has to give permission to on-donate the eggs as well. This is a shout-out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free project health check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance, and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. This is all the stuff that we don't know about, right? If it's not in our world, like just listening to you, I'm like, whoa, there's a lot of matches that need to happen there and a lot of conversations and a lot of marrying up for some, you know, just this is before we start the process, can we just add? Oh, absolutely. This is all before we actually start the process. Mm. Yep. Yeah, so they donated it. They had done genetic testing on the embryo, so they knew that one embryo was female and the rest were male. And in my extended family, there's only one granddaughter. That's full stop now, but um, it was only one granddaughter. So I did try with the, just before I tried with the female embryo, I actually had a, I can't remember what it's called, hysteroscopy, I think it was called, where they check inside the uterus just to make sure that it's okay. I was diagnosed then with adenomyosis, which is similar to the endometriosis metriosis that it's where similar tissue grows into the lining of or the muscle of the uterus and it basically stops implantation so I was then put on medication that put me into chemical menopause and I was on that for six weeks so I had menopause for six weeks which shrunk the adeno adenomyosis and then we did the first transfer that transfer didn't work and there's a whole heap of reasons that I suspect why it didn't work. I then decided that I would get myself right um, emotionally because I'd had a breakup in that time. I decided I'd go and do acupuncture and Chinese herbs. My acupuncturist convinced me to try paleo and I did and I dropped, I think it was another 10 kilos without even trying. And so I was really, really fit Um, and everything. So I was all set. And my fertility specialist said to me, okay, you're getting older. Why don't we try transferring two? We've never transferred two before. And he was a bit, you know, unsure of whether transferring two was good because if one embryo is not as good quality, it often causes the second embryo not to take as well. And I said, well, you know, that's fine. I'm happy to try that. He said, you've got to be prepared for twins. And I said, I've had two psychics in my life tell me that I'm going to have twins. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two separate psychics. And I said, that's, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Not knowing what it actually is like. Having twins. <laughs> that was before I realized that two babies, two arms, two boobs. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So I, I did the transfer and I decided that this transfer, I was doing things differently. I had a bit of a routine and that was common, you know, in IVF circles that people just did the same routine. They did, they ate the same thing afterwards and things like that. I decided I'd stay in a different hotel. I would have a different meal. I had acupuncture the night before I had acupuncture straight after the transfer. I took a photo of the embryos, um, which I'd never done before. I did go to a shopping centre but decided I'd go to a different one than I normally would that was close to the specialist surgery and thing. So it was all like I made it all very different and things. And then I had the two-week wait, which is where you wait and have the blood test to find out whether it's worked or not. I 
was very strong and didn't do any pregnancy tests, whereas most people do pregnancy tests all the way through. But I just, I just never did that, and I didn't want to do that. Looking back, the only symptom I had was I felt like someone had ripped my hair out, which people just look at me and go, "What?" But it is actually a, a, an early pregnancy sign where your scalp hurts, which is it's bizarre, but it, it's sort of that thing. I had the blood test, and I got a really bad migraine the day that I was due to get the results, and I was just waiting for the phone call. I had an acupuncture an appointment and things. And I was driving there and I saw that it was, you know, IVF Australia ringing. So I pulled over and the nurse, and I have to apologize for the swearing, but the nurse um, said to me, she said, congratulations, Joe, you're pregnant. And I just went, fuck. <laughs> and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I won't, uh, sorry. I won't spend. She goes, she was laughing. She's like, we get that all the time. And she said, look, your HCG level, and I can't remember what it is now, but she said it. And I just went, fuck and I'm like sorry 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 and I just every time and she's like no that's fine we'll do blood tests again in a week and see what's happening but congratulations just keep you know taking it easy no exercise and just try not to get yourself too hot or too cold and things like that and she said any questions and I'm like no and I said so I am pregnant and she said yep your blood tests have shown you're pregnant I was just, oh, my God. Anyway, so I kept driving just going, oh. And then my specialist rang and so I pulled over again and he said to me, congratulations, Joe. He said, from your HCG level, I think both have taken. And I just went, fuck, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And and he just laughed and he just said, I think instant family, Joe, this is fantastic. He said, I've actually got a really good feeling about this and, you know, I'm so pleased for you and did all of that. And I just said, great. And he said, I'll, you know, be in touch with you again after your next, like your first scan, your viability scan. I said, oh, great, no worries. And so I just sat there and I had a bit of time between when I had to be at the appointment. And so I rang my two closest friends and the first friend that I rang, she didn't say anything and all of a sudden she just does this big wail and she was bawling her eyes out and she's like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. And then, you know, of course I start crying and things like that and I drove um, to the acupuncture and he was doing the Chinese herbs and I walked in and I said, oh, I've just had my two-week blood test and I'm pregnant. And he said, yeah, I'm, I know you were last week. And I was like, what? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I can tell. And he said, I knew you were last week. And I said, why didn't you say anything? He said, oh, it wasn't my place. And he said, so those, all those needles that you got was to keep the embryo in there. It was, you know, to keep the pregnancy viable. And I was just like, oh, my God, like maybe this is real. I left that appointment and went straight to Coles and bought a pregnancy test. I'm just <laughs> going to check and I want to know the, the way wanted, that everyone else sees it. <laughs> I, I wanted something visual that I could hold and look at. Yeah. And it sat on my bedside table and I just – like it was just, it still gives me goosebumps, but I've still got that, you know, pee on the stick stick. They need to do a pee on the stick for twins now. That needs to be the next pee on the stick. It's like one baby, two <laughs> babies, three babies. I, I think that's probably, you know, for someone who's not expecting twins, that would be a shock. I don't think there's ever a moment that you can get that, that it's not a shock other than when you are potentially doing that IVF and thinking. Absolutely. And then um, the week later when I had the next blood test and the nurse rang and she said, um, your HCG levels have doubled. You know, this is, it was more than doubled. It was like tripled. And she said, this is great. She said, we're having bets in the office of how many are in there. And I said, what? I said, we only transferred two. And she said, yeah, but they were five-day-old embryos. They can split. I was like, what? <gasps> oh, my God. No. I said, no. You didn't tell me that. That wasn't in the rule book. <laughs> exactly. Could you have had four? I could have had four. I could have, <gasps> more. I could have had whatever. And no. I remember having, because early on I was having really vivid, freaky dreams. And I remember having this dream where I had four babies and four boobs. Like I looked like a cow hanging off me. So when I went for the viability scan and she did the scan and she said, oh, can, you know, because I said, well, I'm finding out how many are in there. And she said, oh, there's two. And I said, oh, great. Can you just make sure it is only two? So every scan I'd be saying, you sure there's, there's only still two? And they were like, yep, 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 sort of thing. So it was twins. I was just, you know, in shock and just, but I, I wasn't allowed to exercise. So, you know, I told people that, you know, I had to have a procedure was what I'd said and that I'm not allowed to exercise straight away just to try and keep it quiet. I was working up with you guys and I was training with Kim to run 5K straight, which I'd never done in my whole entire life. And then when I got that transfer call to say when it was going to be, 
I remember saying to Kim, I need to do it. And she's like, well, you're not quite there. And I'm like, no, I'm doing it. And it was like, <laughs> you're I was the, having the your writing's not quite right. You've only run 1.5. I'm worried about injury. And you're like, it no, doesn't no. matter. Let's go. <laughs> no, I'm I was up to, yeah, I think I was up to about 4K straight. Yeah. I think. You did it though. I did it. I remember that day. Because I was like, no, I'm doing it. I need to tick this off. So, yeah, the Thursday and I remember just running off down beside the creek and, and just going and watching my watch going, oh, I've got so much more and I had to keep, you know, keep going. And, and I made it like, and I remember running up and back near altitude, you know, running up and back the park just to get that final. And I went a bit further than the 5 5Ks just to make sure that I definitely got it. <laughs> 5.4. I made it. <laughs> I made it, absolutely. And, you know, I remember saying to people, they say, oh, you're still running 5Ks? And I'm like, no, nah, I ticked that box. Yeah. I don't have to do it again. That's a once in a lifetime for me now. I'm having 13 <laughs> children. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, no, I was only having two. But as, as exciting as it was to have twins I was also so anxious through that like so much leading up to getting pregnant and that was my first ever pregnancy and just yeah just worry so worried that I was going to lose them that something was going to happen I had the dream pregnancy until 30 weeks and then I got a call from the hospital to say that one of my babies had stopped growing and that they were concerned and I had to come in for monitoring so I turned up at the hospital in a bit of, you know, panic and shock. And this was, I had my boys June of 2020. So COVID had hit. We were in lockdown working from home, all that sort of thing. So I couldn't bring anyone to the hospital. So I was alone. Even if I had have had a partner, they wouldn't have been able to come. And the nurses were fantastic. And the first night, so I was a bit nervous. And, you know, baby one who was ended up being Callum was head down and was head down pretty much the whole pregnancy. They put the monitor on him, not a problem. Declan, who's my cheeky boy, every time they put the monitor on, he'd do this lovely shoulder roll and knock the monitor off. And the first midwife that was trying to, you know, put it on was just getting so frustrated. But they did the scans and everything was looking good. They had good blood flow. They had good heartbeats, all of that sort of thing. And then the obstetrician came in and he said, right, you need to start resting more. You need to be sitting with your feet up. And I said, oh, so no exercise. And he was shocked that at 30 weeks carrying twins, I was still doing PT once a week. I was doing yeah. yoga once a week. Yeah. I was walking every yeah. day, you know, like a good three, four Ks every day. And he just went, no, no, you shouldn't be exercising. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and he said, I don't want you walking any further than the end of the block. And I said, that's one house. And he said, yep, that's it. He said, someone can drive you to a coffee shop and you can walk inside and walk back out. That's it. That's the most, you're not even allowed to walk around a shopping, you know, a supermarket to get your groceries. You're not allowed to lift, you're not allowed to. And I just went, oh, my God, how am I going to do that? Living alone, how am I going to do this? Anyway, my parents were supposed to be in Italy but had to cancel because of COVID. So I rang my mum when I got home that night and said, just letting you know I'm going to have to go to Newcastle because one of the babies has stopped growing. They're a bit concerned. And mum said, oh, we've been expecting this. We'll, we'll leave tomorrow and we'll come up and look after you. And I was like, great, you know, wonderful. So they did. So they came up and drove me to Newcastle. Mum did all the washing of all the baby stuff and, you know, they got me all organised. My dad went and bought me a new car because the double pram didn't fit in my poor little Civic. I'd imagine, Joe, just what you need. Like you've done this oh, journey. Yeah. For decades really on your own from that yep. moment you got diagnosed with and I can never say it, endometriosis, right through till this point. You had been doing it on your own. I had, yeah. So they ended up coming up and we got to Newcastle and had the first scan and they told me to pack a bag just in case I got kept there. So I was half in my mind thinking that, you know, there's an issue and I was going to meet my babies that day. They were going to be small and all that sort of thing. And we got there and they did the scan and said, blood flow is really good, blood flow around the brain. There's still high levels of amniotic fluid. All the checks that they did were all great. There was no protein in my urine. There was no, you know, high sugar levels, nothing. Like my blood pressure was perfect. And they were just like, we're not actually sure what's going on, but we'll do another scan next week. And and things like that and just keep monitoring. So the second scan, Declan was the concern and he'd put on 500 grams in the two weeks between scans and they just went, we're not sure whether what was happening, but that was 500 grams within their two scans. I don't know what that translates to, Joe. Does that mean good, bad? Good. That was good. Yeah, it was really good. So, yeah, so they were like, yep, we're going to deliver you at 36 weeks. You'll have to come down and have 
steroid injections beforehand and you'll have to have a bit of monitoring some scans the day before just to know the position of the babies and all that sort of thing. So, you know, I had a due date. Like I knew when they were coming unless they came earlier than that, but, you know, that was something I could work to in, in my head. So, yeah, when I got to John Hunter in Newcastle, they said to me, you need to stop working, you need to take your maternity leave. And I said, well, I'm working at home. I'm pretty much just sitting on the couch. You know, the expectations are quite low in terms of what we're doing because we were still learning how to cope with COVID and, you know, being totally online. So I could be really flexible and things. And I ended up technically working till 34 weeks. And then that was how I announced it to basically everyone, to people in Melbourne. And everyone was posting it on Facebook that I was officially on maternity leave. And I think I got 180 odd comments that people just had no idea. People had no idea because they hadn't seen me around Armidale pregnant, like, or they hadn't noticed when I was somewhere. Yeah, and even people saw me once I started pushing a double stroller around going, oh, are they your babies? babies? (laughs) Were you you pregnant? Yeah, and that's the funky thing about COVID as well, isn't Mm. it? Like there was this huge kind of people had babies, they fell in love, like all this stuff happened and we kind of came out of the fog and we're still coming out of it. It's like, oh, that happened. Yeah. So, yeah, my parents ended up staying with me until the January after, so January 21, because Melbourne went into – lots of lockdowns they were so every time they'd say well we're getting ready to to go home and things Melbourne would go into lockdown so they'd be with me and I don't think they really wanted to leave they you know mum was a great help in those first you know six months like it was amazing because you know my I was breastfeeding the boys but I was also bottle topping them up because when they were born Callum needed oxygen support and Declan was under their 2.2 kilos, which meant that he had to go to the NICU. So they spent 15 days in the NICU and special care down in Newcastle before I got to bring Bring them home. Part of the reason was because Armadale didn't have enough beds. They technically only have one special care bed, which is stupid because twins, hello, um, will need <laughs> two babies <laughs> two babies, and they were going to make allowances. They were going to put us in the children's ward. They were going to do all these different things. They just didn't have the space. And I was, you know, I was okay at John Hunter. It was hard once I got kicked out of the hospital and had to stay in a motel. So I had to actually leave the babies and come back. And that was just, that was heartbreaking, but that was only for I think two or three nights. And Joe, I'm wondering after listening, I mean, it's hard to believe we're at an hour already. We're going to have to get you back on because we haven't even heard about the (laughs) Callum and Declan and life with two as a single mom. And oh, so I'm definitely going to commit to having you back on. But I'm wondering in this first chapter, the lead into having the boys, what has stayed with you from that whole process? My determination to actually become a mother that you know, I was thrown endometriosis, adenomyosis, being single, you know, my eggs being too old by the time I, I did it. And just that scan where I heard their heartbeats and saw that there was two babies on that screen and that was my tummy that those two babies were inside still ugh, makes me just get, you know, get, get goosebumpy and you know, sort of butterflies in my tummy and just so excited that that was actually me and that was that was happening at that. That you were in that moment yeah, having that a scan. Pregnant, that, yeah. 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 When I listened to your story, the part that stayed with me, the part that really just, oh, was that email when you were at the conference. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, I started sobbing, but I was just like I cannot imagine yeah. that moment of joy and, oh, just possibility and oh like that will stay with me all day I think just listening to your story and because I'd met those donors as people that had been through a process and that we had used an egg donor I didn't meet them as my donors I met them as people Mm. and got to know their story and we got along really well when you know there was a connection between you know, all four of us, the egg donor and then the couple that donated to me was just amazing. And even their two daughters, like my boys have a full genetic sister that shares the same genetic material. Oh, my God, we're having, we're definitely doing a second episode, Joe. So we may <laughs> no. record that sooner rather than later so we can go back mm-hmm. to back because, yeah, there's so much more of this story mm. that we haven't got to today. And, yeah. you know, I it feels like I'm almost 
cutting you off by by stop, <laughs> stopping yeah. it. But like we're leaving it as a cliffhanger for next time. Yes, <laughs> yes, everyone. This is our first cliffhanger of our oh, challenges wow. that change us. But Joe, let me wrap this up with who or what in your world. This is the question I love to ask at the end of every podcast. Who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh? Oh, it definitely has to be my boys. They, they do the, the most crazy, ridiculous things, like the latest one. I was uh, a couple of weeks ago cooking in the kitchen and my boys are, one of them is pretty much toilet trained, the other one is, yeah, hit and miss. And so we had a day at home where I wasn't too fussed. We stayed in pyjamas. They ended up half the time being naked. And so my lovely Declan, who is my cheeky one, decided that it was snowing in the kitchen and he laid down with just a T-shirt on and did snow angels all around my kitchen. I have videoed it and I've showed a couple of friends, but it's one of those videos that I will bring back at the time. I just could could not stop laughing, absolutely, and he was just gorgeous. And then, you know, Callum comes in naked and he's lying down, you know, doing snow angels and just every time they'd say, let's do snow angels, I just... I crack up again. Like it just, they do make me laugh. Like they're frustrating and challenging and oh my God. But at the same time, they are just gorgeous and, and things. Yeah. They're beautiful. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on today and for sharing this journey because it is very personal. Yeah. People often ask me, do I tell the boys that they're you know, that they're donor children. And I say, I don't want any secrets. So I'm, I'm honest with them and I'm honest with other people. Like I don't, I'm not a very good secret keeper of my own secrets. I just can't hold them in. And so I just wanted to share that experience and that, you know, I want to share it with them and tell them regularly. They know their donors, they've met their donors, one of their donors. Well, it's in this moment that I remind you that this is an international podcast across like 75 countries. So there's definitely no secrets after that conversation. (laughs) But this will be beautiful for them. This will be a keepsake that you'll be able to play for them one day when they're ready and when when you're ready for them to know that journey. Yep. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. No worries. It always fascinates me what I take away from each guest that comes on this podcast. Today, I took so much away from listening to Joe. It is a world that I have not experienced personally, and I probably did not understand just how all-consuming it can be for someone going through it. It is really incredible that Joe was able to lose 58 kilos through sheer determination and hard work. As a personal trainer, I know the courage and grit it takes to do that. This courage was then transferred across to her IVF journey. As you all would have heard, I burst into tears when Jo told us about that moment she received the email with the potential donors. I really hope each of you took away as much as I did from this episode. Jo spoke so beautifully about something so personal and I felt like she took all of us on that journey with her. I hope you all have a fabulous week. Jump on now and book your seat in the Disc Personality Workshop or you 100% are going to miss out. I cannot wait to see some of your smiling faces there and we will be back next Monday for another episode. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.